Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington. And this week on Face the Nation, another weekend rocked by gun violence. And at America's southern border, preparations are underway for a migration surge that may strain resources and ignite political tension. Gunfire and panic at an outlet mall just outside of Dallas as another gunman opens fire and once again, an American community is the target of a mass shooter. We'll have the latest. Plus, with pandemic-era border restrictions under Title 42 set to expire Thursday, once again, our southern border braces for an influx of migrants seeking a better life in America. Leaders in border communities are sounding the alarm about the likely humanitarian crisis. If all the numbers of migrants are, are transferred here like it's planned, then it'll be devastating. We'll ask Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas about the security challenges we're facing within the U.S. And a rare conversation with Arizona's independent Senator Kirsten Sinema, who says the Biden administration had two years to prepare for the migrant surge and did not do so. Have you talked to the White House directly about this? Yes, I have. What's the response? It has not been adequate. Do you care to elaborate? I do not. (laughs) And as the U.S. barrels toward potential default on its debt, President Biden will sit down with congressional leaders Tuesday to negotiate lifting the debt ceiling. We'll discuss that and the concerns about stability in America's banking system with the chairman of the House Financial Services Committee, Patrick McHenry. Then, the North Carolina Republican legislature passes new restrictions on abortion. Can the Democratic governor, Roy Cooper, stop it from becoming law? We'll ask him. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We have a lot to get to this morning, including that migrant surge expected at the border. But we're going to begin another Sunday with news of gun violence shattering several communities across the country yesterday. The deadliest toll was taken in a suburb about 25 miles north of Dallas. CBS News correspondent Omar Villafranca is on the scene. Omar. Margaret, just after 3.30 yesterday afternoon, there was mayhem and carnage at this suburban mall when a gunman who was heavily armed and wearing body armor opened fire, killing eight people and injuring seven others before police finally shot and killed him. Investigators have not released the names of the victims or the shooter. We want to warn you, some of the video you're about to see is disturbing. Dashcam video captured the moment the gunman emerged from a gray car in the parking lot and opened fire on people shopping at the Allen Premium Outlets. Shoppers ran for cover as the gunfire continued until an Allen Police Department officer in the area on an unrelated call sprang into action. He heard gunshots, went to the gunshots, engaged the suspect and neutralized the suspect. Witnesses described the panic and terror as the shooter fired dozens of rounds. It was at least 50 to 100 rounds. It was nonstop, and there was nothing we could do. It was just terrible. 
And all of a sudden we heard pop, 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 and I just grabbed my kids and ran. Seven people were killed at the scene, including the gunman. Two later died from their injuries. Three of the victims are in critical condition. Four are stable. We know you are grieving. We are grieving. Rest assured, the nation and the world are also grieving. Texas has been here before. Almost a year ago, 19 children and two teachers were killed in an attack at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. According to the Gun Violence Archive, this is the 199th mass shooting of 2023. Today is only the 127th day of the year. Omar, thank you. We turn now to what's likely to be a difficult next few weeks at the border, where several communities have already declared states of emergency. Our Homeland Security and Justice reporter, Nicole Skanga, is there. Margaret, the clock is ticking down on an end to Title 42, another flashpoint in the immigration debate. But here on the U.S.-Mexico border, it's not just a policy change, it's the front lines of a humanitarian crisis. In South Texas, the Department of Homeland Security says they've encountered an influx of migrants ahead of Title 42's end, driven by an uptick in Venezuelan nationals. Still, others wait in Mexico, camped along the Rio Grande River. New Biden administration guidelines that kick in after May 11th promise more consequences, like a one-way ticket on ice air. We watched as 133 migrants, hands and feet shackled, boarded a plane back to Guatemala Friday. ¿De dónde es usted? Venezuela. In Laredo, Texas, this emergency shelter is a welcome reprieve for many, like 29-year-old Margarita Hebrew, who crossed the U.S.-Mexico border pregnant with her five- and three-year-old daughters. Back at home in Venezuela, she says there is nothing. ¿Está listo el niño? The mayor of Laredo has declared a citywide emergency. The disaster is an imminent disaster. It may not be here right now, but it's like a hurricane that's coming. You board up before the hurricane. With this week's policy change, U.S. officials expect as many as 10,000 migrants a day to traverse the U.S.-Mexico border at crossings like the one behind me. Margaret? Nicole, thank you. For more, we're joined now by the Homeland Security Secretary, Alejandro Mayorkas. It's good to have you here in person, sir. Good morning, Margaret. Uh, before we get to migration, I want to ask, do you have any information about this latest mass shooting in Texas, which may have been with an AR-15 style weapon? Uh, Margaret, another horrific uh, tragedy in our country. I spoke uh, with the governor uh, last night, as well as the mayor. The matter is still un under investigation. No information about the shooter? Uh, no, Margaret. I think it's, it's under investigation. The state and local authorities are leading that investigation. Um, let's get to the border. This is the greatest migration surge, you said, in the Western Hemisphere since World War II. And you've been preparing for more than a year and a half. How rough will the next few weeks be? You know, Margaret, we've been preparing uh, for this for more than a year and a half. You are correct. And it is indeed a regional challenge. And it requires a regional response, which is why we are working so closely with many countries to the south. It's going to take our plan a while to really take hold for people to understand that they can access lawful, safe, orderly pathways before they reach the border. And quite frankly, if they come to the border, they will receive a consequence under our enforcement authorities. So you are, uh, as an administration, setting up processing centers in Colombia and Guatemala so migrants can start the asylum process before they make it to the border. But those aren't set up yet. When will those be functional? So we are furthest along with Colombia. Uh, it should be a matter of weeks. But we also have additional lawful pathways that already have existed for people to access. The phone apps the, you're talking about? Yes, the, the parole program for Cubans, mm -hmm. Haitians, Nicaraguans, and Venezuelans. We are expanding our family reunification programs. So uh, you have announced 1,500 troops that are going to El Paso, Texas. Why not other parts of the border? Is Texas the most porous area? Well, they will be dispersed. Uh, as operational needs require. And so the deployment of active duty troops is not to do enforcement work, not to interact with the migrants, but to provide other uh, support so that our Border Patrol agents 
can be out in the field. The governor of Arizona and the senior senator told us that the federal government is unprepared. Uh, senator Sinema said Homeland Security is not sharing information with her or local law enforcement on numbers of migrants, processing time, and available buses to transport them. The governor also said she needs more urgency and she can't get specific information on dollars for emergency shelters. Why isn't that kind of specific detail being shared? Well, I respectfully disagree with the senator and the governor. Uh, number one, we are prepared, uh, as we noted at the very beginning of our conversation. We've been preparing uh, for this for quite some time. We tried to end Title 42 repeatedly, and mm -hmm. we're, we're stopped from doing so by the courts. So we are prepared, number one. Number two, we have a migration information center that is specifically set up to communicate with state and local officials, and we have been doing so. We are using our FEMA regional coordinators as our key points of contact. I spoke with Senator Sinema, I think within the last two weeks, mm -hmm. and our personnel are in touch uh, with other officials on a regular basis. She said she had been in touch uh, with Homeland Security, also with the White House, but the information was not adequate. So do you think there is a communication problem here? I, I do not. And if there is a, a question that has been unanswered, we will answer it. I will tell you, though, let's take a step back. Uh, because there's a very important message not to uh, communicate only to Senator Sinema, uh, but to all senators and all members of the House of Representatives. We need immigration reform. Everything that the Department of Homeland Security is doing, everything that our partners across the federal government uh, are, are doing is within a broken immigration system. Mm -hmm. uh, the president passed uh, to Congress a proposal to fix our broken immigration system on the first day in office. But that's and like a to-do list. That's different than putting your shoulder behind it, picking up the phone and saying, excuse me, Democrats control the Senate. Let's be out front on immigration. Margaret, we have been pushing for immigration legislation since day one. And by the way, it didn't start on day one. This is a decades-long problem. The immigration system hasn't been fixed since the 90s. Absolutely. And, and it has only seemingly gotten worse with the set of circumstances we're in now. But to that point, this gets so politicized. And you take a lot of the political heat yourself because you run the agency on the security portion of this. But if the politics are, are so bad and the security situation is um, so difficult and you need more resources, why isn't the president out there talking more about the need for a border bill? Why isn't Leader Schumer doing this? It seems like the issue is being conceded to Republicans. I, I Margaret, I just respectfully disagree. Uh, I spoke with Leader Schumer also within the last two weeks. We are in constant communication. Is there a timeline we, from we are, him? We are constant. There is there is not a day that goes by that we are not urging Congress to pass reform. So does the administration support the bipartisan bill from Senator Sinema and Tillis that would allow for expelling of migrants for two years, similar to Title 42? Title 42 and the expulsion authority is a public health authority. Right. It is not an immigration authority. We will be using our immigration authorities, which call for a consequence regime, which is why we have to correct the lies that smugglers tell vulnerable migrants. They think they're coming and they'll be able to stay, and that is just unequivocally false. And what I would say to the senators, Senators Tillis and Sinema, what we need is our system fixed, right. not this Band-Aid solution. Senator Bob Menendez, who's the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, a Democrat, said the administration has ignored his proposals. Um, he objected to the sending of troops, um, and he criticized lack of planning. So if you have people who are border state senators who want to do something, um, and then you have the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee saying he wants to do something, why... Is the administration ignoring that or pushing it, pushing it aside? I, I, the, the administration is not ignoring it. Well, Menendez we are, said that. We are, we are pressing forward. And by the way, uh, uh, Senator Menendez, the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, set forth a really thoughtful document with a number of pillars of action. And we have indeed implemented a number of those. Henry Cuellar, Democrat, said he has confidence in you and Homeland Security, but he said the White House is holding you back. Untrue. One team, one mission, and we are prepared to execute it. Mr. Secretary, we'll be watching. 
Good luck to you. Thank you so much, Margaret. Late last week, we traveled to the border state of Arizona for the McCain Institute Sedona Forum, honoring the late senator who was known for his straight talk and ability to forge bipartisan compromise when the need arose. We spoke with the state's newly independent senator, Kirsten Sinema. She left the Democratic Party last fall and is very much aligned with that maverick mindset. We're in the midst of the hemisphere's worst refugee crisis. Partisanship is at such a a high level. Um, Is it simply a political reality that you can't get comprehensive reform done? You have to chip away at this piecemeal. What you introduced was um, a temporary two-year authority to expel migrants, but with an exemption for asylum claims because of the immediate Title 42 expiration. That's a Band-Aid. The Biden administration had two years to prepare for this and did not do so. And our state is going to bear the brunt and migrants will be in crisis as soon as next week. It will be a humanitarian crisis because we are not prepared. So the legislation we introduced yesterday is about tidying this over, giving us some time and space for the Biden administration to do their job Mm -hmm. and for us legislators to actually create a a plan that can get through both the House and the Senate. But the votes aren't there for this replacement, essentially, of Title 42, the two-year ability to expel migrants without guaranteed asylum hearings. We don't know that yet. We just introduced the bill yesterday. Well, Republican uh, Senator Lankford was out criticizing it, saying it doesn't solve the problem. And he has oh, it been does a partner to you. Yeah. No, but I don't think that's a criticism. He's right that it doesn't solve a problem. You think you can get this passed before next week? Before, before May 11th? Oh, God, no, Margaret. This is the United States Senate. <laughs> That's what I was saying. I don't think we can get agreement on a restroom break by next Thursday. Um, The United States Senate is functioning at a fairly dysfunctional level right Mm -hmm. now. And that's due to the partisanship that is driving both parties. As you and I both know, both parties have benefited for decades by not solving this challenge. Mm -hmm. They use it to bash each other in elections. And what bothers me about that, Margaret, is that, look, they don't live in a border state. So they don't know that the mayor of Gila Bend has to put migrants in his car and drive them to Phoenix because they are released in a town that has no bus stop. They don't know what it's like for migrants to sleep outside in the farms in Yuma because there is nowhere for them to go. This is a crisis for our border communities and for migrants. Mm -hmm. And so unfortunately, the parties are thinking about this from a political perspective rather than a human perspective. You said the administration failed to create a workable plan to process migrants after May 11th, Title 42. They would say they've got the troop deployment of 1500s, processing centers, a phone app, expansion of legal migration, um, regulation that will bar migrants from asylum if they did not first seek asylum in a third country. Do you support any of what the administration has done? Well, these steps, which all have been announced in the past week or so, are helpful. These are very helpful. Having 1,500 troops along the um, U.S.-Mexico border is helpful. It is a border of over 2,000 miles, though. So 1,500 troops isn't going to get the job done. Um, That's just the reality. We also are very concerned that all of this is happening in the week or so before the rollout. Just today, I was on the phone with a sheriff of... Cochise County. He has gotten no information from the Department of Homeland Security or the federal government about what the flow is going to look like, about what they can expect for processing in terms of how long it takes to process migrants. He's gotten no information, neither have I, about how many buses there will be available to transport migrants. Now, he's gotten the information he does have from me, because I call him every few days, but he's not gotten that information from the Department of Homeland Security. And Margaret, what's, what's unfortunate is that I'm asking for that information and I'm not getting it. And so either the, either the administration has that information and they're choosing not to share it, which is a problem mm-hmm. since we're the ones who are gonna deal with the crisis, or they, ha- or they don't have it. And that's even more concerning because how do you prepare for an inflow of migrants when you don't know what you're going to expect? And that hasn't been shared with the governor? It has not been shared with the governor. I spoke with the governor yesterday. Wow. It has not been shared. So we do not have this information. Um, there are three nonprofit organizations in Arizona that provide incredible, incredible assistance to our border communities. One is in Yuma, one is in Tucson, one is in Phoenix. They don't have this information. And they're the ones who are responsible for accepting the migrants Mm -hmm. after they're released from custody. 
So while it's wonderful that the administration is announcing things like a 1,500 troop deployment and these new processing centers, which will not be operational by next Friday, those are good things. Those are aspirational. Mm -hmm. That's not the same as operational. Rent the buses, hire the drivers, build the soft-sided facilities so that we can process individuals. We need more holding capacity. I mean, let's be realistic here. And that's what's not, we're not prepared for that. And that's frustrating, Margaret. And the reason why it's frustrating is because I know that that means that the sheriffs in our southern border are going to be bearing the brunt of it. And our men and women of Border Patrol will be working even longer shifts. Mm -hmm. Have you talked to the White House directly about this? Yes, I have. What's the response? It has not been adequate. Do you care to elaborate? I do not. <laughs> um, because what you're laying out is a level of crisis concern. So yes, that's correct. They were. That is what I have been doing. I've been raising the alarm because... Did they return your calls? Oh, yes, yes. And just not share information? Just not... Right, that's correct. This is a problem. Mm -hmm. We've had two years to prepare for this. Do you think that's personal? No. No, not at all. I don't think it's personal. I think that there's a system in Washington, D.C. that is deeply disconnected from the real lives and experiences of border communities and the migrants who seek to come to this country. But what I would like, Margaret, is for them to learn. Uh, President Biden acknowledged you as the lead co-author of bipartisan infrastructure bill. He called you the most determined woman I know. Leader McConnell said, you're the most effective first term Senator I've seen in my time in the Senate. What would you want to get done in a second term? Um, immigration. You know, it's been part of my life's work. Uh, folks who've known me for a long time in Arizona know that I started my career as a social worker. Mm -hmm. And when I started my career as a social worker, I actually worked in an immigrant and refugee community. And that was many years ago. So this, is, this has been, it has been really important to me my entire life. Are we that far off from it that we're looking past 2024? No, I'd like to do it before then. Our state has suffered for the last 40 years because of the federal government's failure to do anything about it and we're facing the worst crisis of my life right now with immigration. So I wanna do it now. We'll have more of our conversation with the Senator in our next half hour, and we'll be back in one minute. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move, or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. In preparation for our trip here to Sedona, Arizona, and the conversation with Senator Sinema, we looked back through the Face the Nation archives to see what the late Senator John McCain had to say about immigration. Here's what he said in 2007. Whenever there's been a wave of immigration into this country, whether it's legal or illegal, there's been a certain backlash. You can go all the way back to the Irish, and Irish need not apply you know, to the signs and stores in the 19th century. Uh, and unfortunately, in some ways, it's gotten, I think, uh, too 
emotional and too intense. Americans want the border secured, so we have to secure the borders first. They didn't trust us or believe us that when we said we'd do it, so we have to do that first. But just let me add, and as I pointed out, they are God's children. There are people who are being abused, as we've spoken, that are hum as we are speaking, who are human beings and uh, people who are uh, bad people are having them work and not paying them. People are being exploited. The coyotes are, are doing terrible things. There are shootouts on our freeways in Arizona. Our emergency rooms are overcrowded. These safe houses, terrible things happen. So there is a humanitarian side to this issue, and I think m maybe we ought to also take that in consideration. And it's still an emotional issue. And those challenges from 12 years ago still haven't found solutions. Welcome back to Face the Nation. Here's more of our conversation with Senator Kirsten Sinema in Sedona last week. I want to ask you about a quote that stood out to me that was in a recent New York Times profile of you. It quotes you as saying, one of the big problems in negotiations is that often some, not exclusively men, but often men, are so busy talking about what they need, they're not spending any time hearing what someone else needs. If you give them what they need, you can get what you want. So on May 9th, five men, including the President of the United States and four congressional leaders, are gonna meet to discuss the standoff over the debt ceiling. You've been listening. What does a deal look like? Mm. I've been disappointed with the conversations up to date. Both parties are talking without listening to each other. They're just talking right past each other, mm -hmm. right? So President Biden says, I want a clean debt limit to meet the full faith and responsibility of the United States of America. To be clear, he's correct. We must meet the full faith and credit responsibility for the United States of America. That is our duty. However, it's not correct to assume or to pretend that either party is used to or always is willing to pass a debt limit without conditions. Mm -hmm. Both parties have played this game for years. And so we're in a situation where one party is saying they will not negotiate at all with the other party. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very dangerous place to be because one, it's not realistic. And two, that is not going, it's just not going to happen. So Kevin McCarthy, as we all saw, took him a long time to become speaker, barely squeaked by with the votes had to make a lot of concessions to get the job. And he has a very, very, very narrow road to walk. So he has to thread a needle where he can get the votes he needs to pass a debt limit increase and continue to be speaker. Mm -hmm. Now, there have been sounds coming out from the Republican conference in the House for months. Patrick McHenry, who's the chair of the House Financial Services Committee, Patrick has been talking for months about what a deal could look like. People have not been listening. They should be. I think folks should actually say, let's hear these options. Mm -hmm. The reality is the bill that Kevin and his colleagues passed with the House is not going to be the solution. Right. The votes do not exist in the United States Senate to pass that. But what the president is offering is not a realistic solution either. There's not going to be just a simple clean debt limit. The votes don't exist for that. So the sooner these two guys get in the room and listen to what the other one needs, mm -hmm. the more likely they are to solve this challenge and protect the full faith and credit of the United States of America. We're in really shaky ground right now. And now we have June 1st as the X date, according That's to the right. Treasury Secretary. That's right. So do you think that gives uh, enough time for a broad agreement? If there's been no talking to date, how do they get it done? They could get it done. By June um, 1st, be yeah. well in advance, before an actual default. They could get it done, but it, it would be a challenge. I think what it would require is both Speaker McCarthy and the president and their respective party machines to kind of drop the facade, you know, like where they're at right now, and just sit down and talk about brass tacks. What does Kevin need in order mm -hmm. to deliver the votes? And what does the president need in order to feel comfortable with the full faith and credit of the United States of America? get to that point, and then figure out a way to give each man what he needs. Are you weighing in on this at all? Uh, I have conversations with my colleagues every day. That sounds like a yes. Um, well, back in 2011, it was a senator who helped deliver uh, 
you know, coming back from the brink the last time there was the risk of, of default when right. Leader McConnell jumped in. Right now, it doesn't look like he's jumping in. I don't think he can. Why? Well, I don't think that a solution that was negotiated by Senator McConnell would carry the kind of weight that is needed with House Republican members. So I think I think Senator McConnell knows that. Which is why he's saying talk to the House. Right. Well, they'll all be in the room on right. May 9th. That's right. So we'll see what happens. Our full conversation with Senator Cinema is on our website and our YouTube channel. And we turn now to the chairman of the House Financial Services Committee, Patrick McHenry. Uh, Mr. Chairman, good morning. Good morning. Um, the, the senator previewed some of your uh, <laughs> proposals here. So I want to talk to you in depth about that. But just level set for us here, um, because we have the congressional leaders getting in the same room with the president Tuesday. You said in March you've never been more pessimistic about negotiations. Where's your confidence level today? Instead of being at the depths of the ocean, I'm merely drowning. I mean, if that, that tells you. So my level of optimism is from complete and utter pessimism. Anything could get done to some level of uh, modest pessimism now. Um, what's changed since that interview is that the House acted. We passed a debt ceiling increase with a Republican plan attached to it. Mm-hmm. It talks about growth. Just restraint, But we did. Mm-hmm. It's a narrow House. It's going to be a narrow vote. But we, we dealt with growth. We dealt with uh, immediate spending and long-term savings. So a balanced uh, program here. Now, we've sent this over to the Senate. The president said, show us your plan. We've not only shown them the plan, we've passed a plan. Mm -hmm. The Senate can't do it now with 43 senators saying we're not going to go along with the Schumer plan for a clean debt increase, the the Biden plan. And now the the President Biden has to come to the table for a negotiated solution. He needs to listen to his economic advisors, not his political advisors, and take this very seriously given the late stage that we're currently in. You were just referencing a letter that was signed on to by a number of senators, including Minority Leader McConnell, um, who seems to be throwing his weight behind the Speaker of the House. Um, what does a bipartisan deal actually look like? It looks uh, a lot like the bill that we passed out of the House. It touches growth. It touches... That's dead on the rival in the Senate. You know that. Well, we sent a significant large bill that, uh, that brings down the, the cost of government by $4.5 trillion over the next decade. It's big, yes. But we sent growth, short-term cap steel on spending uh, so we can fund our government for the next two years without drama, and then long-term savings. So a pairing of one, two, and three, that's what a deal looks like. I've talked to a lot of senators, a lot of uh, Democrats and Republicans in the House and the Senate to try to see what a deal would look like. And at this stage of the game, the one key ingredient I don't have is what the administration would, would, would come to terms with. We have to have something that can pass, that addresses our fiscal house at a time where we have record inflation and record federal spending. And we need to have something that can both pass with Republicans and Democrats. Exactly. It has to be bipartisan. And you acknowledge it's going to be likely a narrow vote in the House. With the, the vote you did get through, there were four Republicans against it. Two of them have said they will never vote to raise the debt ceiling, Tim Burchett and Andy Biggs. So compromise is where you have to get here, right? I mean, but you're, you're but, saying this to a member of the House that actually passed a debt ceiling increase and right. a president who would not have a second meeting with the Speaker of the House. The first meeting was February 1st, where 100 yeah. days passed. Everyone knows in divided government you have to negotiate, and the president says he will not negotiate. So the absurdity of the position the president's put himself Mm -hmm. in, where he is playing politics with the economy, is markedly different than previous debt ceiling increases, where Republicans have been viewed as the recalcitrants. We've actually done something, and the administration says we're not going to talk. The Treasury Secretary said today it's you all who are putting a gun to the head of the American economy. That is what she said. Um, and she's talking about the fact that you have a statement on a day like today. It, it which is, shows but that it's all about politics for this administration. Tre- U.S. Treasuries are the bedrock, bedrock of the financial system. You know that very well. So don't you need to just say defaults off the table? And that's what we did by passing a plan. The president did not think we could pass a plan out of the House. So therefore, he said it's a clean debt ceiling or nothing. And so debt, a clean debt ceiling is now off the table with Republicans in the House and Senate saying time to negotiate between the speaker and the president. That's all we're saying. The speaker's not laid down a red line. 
those, that's been done in previous iterations of the debt ceiling by Democrats and Republicans in, in the yeah. legislative branch. He had, didn't do that. There are no red lines other than the fact that we must address our fiscal house at a time where federal spending is up 40 percent from pre-COVID levels. Yeah. I think it's a reasonable thing for us to do. And in fact, that's what the American so, people say. Three out of four Americans say the president should negotiate with the speaker to address our fiscal house. I want to get to banking, too, but just very quickly, is the short-term patch off the table, short-term lift to the debt ceiling? I think everything's on the table at this point. The key thing that has to be in this in this equation is addressing our fiscal house short term and long term on the banking sector right now. Last time you were here, you mentioned concern about some of the smaller banks in America, community banks being endangered. On Monday, the government, um, the FDIC, sold failed regional bank First Republic to J.P. Morgan Chase. That's the country's largest bank. It got even bigger here. Are you going to take action to address some of this, because there's concern on both sides of the aisle about big banks getting bigger. Yes. And the way we have to do this is, is, is I agree with uh, Michael Barr, the vice chair of the Fed's review. We have to provision for liquidity more quickly for these small, smaller banks. Uh, we have to make sure that we have a healthy banking arrangement across the whole spectrum. Uh, and we have to ensure that banking models can exist in a, in a society where uh, bank runs can happen more quickly than ever before. But let's get to the fundamentals here. If if we look at the reason why these banks, the three of the 30 largest banks in the mm-hmm. uh, in America have failed in the last two months, it's because of interest rate sensitivity of their balance sheet, which means they misjudged inflation. Mm-hmm. The Fed misjudged inflation. They've admitted it. They're behind the curve. The administration has been asleep at the switch for the supervisors wow. of these institutions. But the root cause of this is inflation. And if we can address inflation, it gets to the disease rather than functioning, uh, addressing the symptoms. Management choices and uh, hedging their bets could have been a big factor here when it came to the CEOs who ran these institutions. Are you going to call them in for testimony? And they're going to be in in two weeks before the House Financial Services Committee. Uh, And this is going to be an important hearing. In the next two months, the House Financial Services Committee will have the the CEOs of these these failed institutions. We're going to have the regulators in, including Secretary Yellen Mm -hmm. and uh, uh, Chair Powell. At the end of June, we're going to have our Humphrey Hawkins hearing to hear from uh, the chair of the Federal Reserve, uh, Jay Powell. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those are important dates in in this uh, calendar, especially given the the state of banking in America today. Uh, And all the pieces affecting um, the economy right now. I want to ask you as well, though, about the stability of the banking sector, um, because you had Jamie Dimon and Jay Powell, two of the most important people in the financial space, saying banks are solid. And then we saw all the volatility in the marketplace again this week. California's PacWest, Arizona's Western Alliance, those two regional banks under pressure. Are we going to see more government rescues? Unfortunately, we're not out of the woods. But what depositors need to understand is since 1933, when we enacted and created the Federal Deposit Insurance Commission, insured deposits have never had a penny of loss. Uh, We have 99 percent of the accounts in America are under the insured deposit uh, cap level. And so 99 percent of the deposits in America are safe and sound. What we have to do is address over a period of time uh, the safety and stability of smaller banks at a time where the market is judging their business model, their interest rate sensitivity, and the assumption that regulators are going to require a lot more capital for these banks to, mm-hmm. uh, to exist, uh, they're making big assumptions. But the stability of the accounts, they're there. You've got your work cut out for you. Good to have you on the program today. We'll be watching May 9th, and we'll be right back. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. (sighs) Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. 
Late last week, North Carolina's Republican-led legislature passed a bill that would limit abortion access in the state. For more, we want to go to the state's Democratic governor, Roy Cooper, who joins us from Raleigh. Good morning to you, Governor. Good morning, Marker. Uh, just to make it clear, abortion is currently permitted up to 20 weeks of pregnancy in your state. This bill coming out of uh, your legislature would bring it down to 12 weeks, which, according to the CDC, would still allow more than 90 percent of abortions to continue. Republicans say they're offering a middle ground here. Why do you think this bill is too restrictive? They've dressed this up as a 12-week ban, but it's really not. They rammed through a bill in 48 hours with no public input, with no amendments that drastically reduces access to reproductive freedom for women. Uh, it'll effectively ban many abortions altogether because of the obstacles that they have created for women, for clinics, and for doctors. They have tried to disguise the disastrous impacts of this bill, but we're going to expose them. This bill has nothing to do with making women safer and everything to do with banning abortions. Well, we it, only need. Mm -hmm. so, just to, to, so our viewers can follow along with you here. The bill would cut it off at the end of the first trimester, roughly 12 weeks. Uh, there would be um, an allowance for abortion up to 20 weeks in case of rape or incest, 24 weeks if there are fetal abnormalities. But what you're talking about are requirements like number of times you have to visit a doctor, information that a woman would have to share publicly. For, for sure. And also, in fact, for medication abortion, the bill specifically limits it to 10 weeks. And with these additional requirements of three in-person visits that doctors have said are medically unnecessary, with more requirements put on clinics that are already strained with four-week backlogs of people. North Carolina has become an access point yeah. in the Southeast. And what this legislation is going to do is going to prevent many women from getting abortions at any time during their pregnancy because of the uh, obstructions that they have put here. Many of these clinics are working very hard to treat women. And now they're going to have many new medically unnecessary requirements that I think many of them are going to have to close. North Carolina uh, has become a haven in the South uh, because so many of your surrounding states have severely restricted access. Um, I know that you have, and we're showing a map there just to show where you are at the moment, but you have vowed to veto this bill. But your state legislature has a supermajority that could override it. So what is your plan to stop them? Well, first, we only need one Republican to keep a promise. At least four Republican legislators made promises to their constituents during this campaign that they were going to protect women's reproductive freedom. They only have a supermajority by one vote in the Senate and one vote in the House. And we've seen Republicans across the country step up. We saw them step up in South Carolina. Mm -hmm. We saw them step up in Nebraska, because they know that people don't want abortion bans. And that's what this bill is. The more why would people they respond, find out about it. Why would they respond the, to your public calling out? Why do you think that would matter to them? Well, they don't have to answer to me. They have to answer to their constituents. So what I'm doing is trying to educate the public about the disaster that this bill is. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go into their districts. I'm going to go into their districts this week. We're going to have forums with doctors and advocates and women's, women who care deeply about the restrictions in this legislation. And we're going to educate the public. Look, yeah. they kept this bill under lock and key. They wouldn't let their own members take a copy out. The public only saw it for 48 okay. hours. It's 46 pages long. Yeah. And it creates so many problems for women in clinics that it's going to operate as an effective ban. And we're not going to we're not going to let them disguise this thing as something reasonable when it's not. Well, I mean, compared to some of your surrounding states, 12 weeks is is, is uh, more if, permissive. If, it were, if but, it were 12 weeks, Margaret, but it's right. not. It's well, not a 12-week ban. Okay. Um, you don't have the votes, though, to codify abortion access in the state of North Carolina. Why have Democrats— No, we do not. No. And so why have Democrats been so outmaneuvered on this issue? I mean, this just seems to be that even if you get rid of this bill, you're going to have this fight again and again and again. So where is the compromise? 
So the, the problem is we have super gerrymandered districts and the Democrats are in a super minority. Every single Democrat has signed a bill to enact Roe v. Wade standards. We're all standing together and fighting. And what we have to do now is defend ourselves from these right wing politicians who want to go into the exam room with women and their doctors. You know, these right wing politicians make crappy doctors and they've gone in and defined medical terms. Doctors are looking at this legislation and say, what in the world does that mean? So what we're going to do is call them out. Look, there are four Republicans, four Republicans who said they would yeah. protect women's reproductive freedom during the campaign. All we need is one of them. We can block this disastrous legislation and and then we can wait for the next right. battle but what we're going to do is to continue to work to protect women's reproductive freedom in north carolina but you're just going to be on the defensive there so i mean how well, does this actually get resolved or do you can you hold a referendum can you do anything if you say the public's with you how do you yeah. find a compromise we're not a referendum state yeah we have gerrymandered districts, so we have a Republican majority. Thank goodness I'm a Democratic governor, so I can rally the troops. For four years, for four years, I have kept abortion legislation from becoming law that Republicans have passed. But in this election cycle, we we lost. They, they gained a supermajority by one vote in each chamber. So now we're in a different position. We, we, we've held the, yeah. held the line for four years. But if we can get a Republican to say, look, this is not right, yeah. like they did in South Carolina, like they did in Nebraska. And their constituents, okay. the more they learn, the more they are going to demand right. that these Republican legislators step up. All right, Governor, we'll leave it there. We'll be back in a moment. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. The fighting in Ukraine has intensified as Kyiv launches a series of drones in Crimea ahead of an expected spring counteroffensive against Russia. Senior foreign correspondent Charlie Daggett is in Dnipro with more. The battle for Bakhmut has burst into flames. Ukraine accusing the Wagner mercenary group of using banned incendiary weapons, possibly white phosphorus, posting videos as proof. Deploying them in civilian areas is a war crime. A ferocious parting shot as the head of Wagner, Yevgeny Prigozhin, declares he's pulling his forces out of Bakhmut by Wednesday, following a rant against Russian defense officials in front of dozens of corpses of his men, saying their blood is still warm, blaming their deaths on a severe lack of ammunition. The death toll after 10 months of fighting has run into the thousands. Unsustainable losses for both sides. A sea of Ukrainian flags fly over the final resting place of the country's war dead. The Ukrainian government never reveals the true death toll of those soldiers killed in action. But these fresh graves tell their own story, including those they're preparing to fill. Ahead of the looming Ukrainian counteroffensive, Russia has gone on the offensive. The U.S. State Department clocked more than 150 airstrikes since the start of May. Ukraine has stepped up its attacks too, striking targets like fuel depots on Russian territory. It's still not clear who is behind the attempted drone strike at the Kremlin on Wednesday, but U.S. officials and Ukrainian experts tell CBS News it had to be launched from inside Russia. Maybe not the terrorist act to kill Putin, the Kremlin says it is. 
but it's an embarrassment ahead of a show of power for the president, Moscow's Victory Parade, an annual symbol of Russian military might, while the bloody battlefields of Ukraine tell a much different story. Although that Moscow parade is still scheduled to go ahead on Tuesday, more than 20 parades across Russia have been canceled, citing security concerns. Although there are questions about whether there are enough troops and equipment to put on display. Margaret? Charlie Daggett, thank you. We'll be right back. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Arizona's senior Senator Kirsten Sinema, North Carolina Republican Congressman Patrick McHenry, and North Carolina's Democratic Governor Roy Cooper. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates in CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News streaming network on Sundays at 1.30, 4, 10 p.m. Eastern, and again at 4 a.m. the next morning. And it's available through our apps, CBS News and Paramount+. Plus. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.